We're a biological species that has this incredibly complex social developmental pathway. And when you had girls meeting in small groups and talking about other girls, yes, they were practicing social skills. And they were trying to figure out what are the limits and when do we show compassion? And it plays out at a certain speed. And I think there's a speed limit. Uh, you know, maybe you can deal with five or 10 different scenarios or conflicts in a day. But I don't think you can deal with 500. I don't think you can deal with just a river of stupid conflict over nothing every day, all day, day after day. So I think we, we put our kids, you know, it's almost as if we said, hey, you know, I don't see any reason why kids couldn't develop in outer space. Let's just raise kids in a zero gravity environment orbiting the moon. I'll bet they'll turn out okay. And my guess is that their heart would be malformed, their eyes wouldn't work right. Like you can't grow up in, a, in an environment as radically different as the one we evolved in and come out okay. And that's, I think, what changed, uh, you know, around 2010, plus or minus. We, we've been raising kids down the social equivalent of orbiting the moon. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Down. If you're familiar with the so-called heterodox space, and if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you almost certainly are, my guest this week needs no introduction. In 2018, the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, along with author and First Amendment advocate Greg Lukianoff, published The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. That book was part of a larger conversation that was burbling up about why young people, especially students on college campuses, were having such a hard time wrestling with ideas they perceived as dangerous, and in fact, why they found so many ideas dangerous to begin with. But while so many other observers and critics were mostly wringing their hands, Haidt and Lukianoff actually did the research into why this was happening, and they found that a handful of intersecting cultural trends including fearful parenting, omnipresent social media, and the corporatization of higher education, had resulted in a generation burdened with high anxiety and a low sense of autonomy. These findings became incredibly significant in discussions about the current culture wars. And I have to say that in all the discussions I've listened to and participated in on that subject, it is rare that Jonathan Haidt's name doesn't come up at least once. John's more recent work goes beyond what's happened with young people and looks at our collapsing institutions more broadly. His recent Atlantic article, Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid, It's Not Just a Phase, was a sensation. And even though I invited him on the podcast to talk about that, we ended up exchanging ideas about lots of other stuff too, including something I've been working on for a while and I'm just now starting to talk about a heterodox community for women. And I explain some of my theories as to why women are less likely to speak up about controversial subjects and how this might map on to John's own research. Oh, and by the way, if you're not sure what heterodox means and you wouldn't be alone there, I'll just offer up my own personal working definition. Heterodox means forming opinions on an issue-by-issue -issue basis rather than lining up according to political party or ideological tribe. That may sound simply like thinking for yourself, which would be right, but it's harder and harder to do that these days. And Jonathan Haidt's work has been seminal in helping us to understand why. So here is our conversation. Jonathan Haidt, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. 
Thank you, Megan. I, I love your work and I love the name of the podcast. It is an honor to have you here and also really overdue since the work that you've done in your career, especially over the last decade, is absolutely foundational for those of us in this heterodox space or whatever you want to call it. I don't know how you feel about the word space. I think heterodox, I think we've made peace with, but space. Yeah, well, space, you know, uh, look, I'm in a business school and people always talk about, oh, I'm in the, you know, the direct retail space. And you know, as, as a sort of like a neutral word, I think George Orwell wouldn't like it. It's one of those words that just is like double plus nothing, but sure, we'll go with it. Yeah, okay. It was new to me. I am not, I'm the farthest thing from the corporate space. So the space, space is all new for yes. the creative space. The final frontier. We, now yes. we call it the creative space. That you used to, it used to just be called the arts, but now it's the creative space. And now it's a space, yes. Anyway, so, all right. Well, I want to thank you for everything that you've done. And I guess I want to start off, you know, you have recently published this incredible Atlantic article that I know you've been talking about a lot. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, but mostly some other stuff. But first, I want to just ask you, when you published The Coddling of the American Mind back in 2018, could you have predicted that 2022 would look like this? Well, so actually, when we published in 2018, yes, we actually did did predict it in that we were going to have a chapter on, I mean, look, Trump was already in office. Things were already going crazy. And we were going to have a chapter on how this is going to spread to the workplace because it was just beginning. We had to lock the text down in spring of, around like March of 2018. We had to close it down and submit it. And we were going to have a chapter on how this is spreading to the workplace. It's going to spread to, you know, to, at the time it wasn't in law school so much because basically Gen Z was graduating in 2018. They were just beginning to go out into the world and bring a lot of these ideas with them. So Greg and I did actually predict that things would get this crazy. Not quite this fast, but we did predict the direction in 2018. The, the more interesting question is when we published the original article in 2015. So that text was actually written mostly in late 2014. And then we chopped it around and we you know, edited it at the Atlantic. Came out in August of 2015. And at the time, we thought that this was something weird happening with undergraduates, which was being caused by things that people were doing on campus, you know, that universities were teaching students to think in these three distorted ways. So that's what that was our diagnosis in 2015. And that turns out to have been totally wrong, because we didn't read it was not something universities were doing. It was a national trend brought about by a lot of things that had nothing to do with universities. And then universities were just accommodating the students and just making it worse. So no, in 2015, I had no idea no idea that our, our country was going to plunge into the complete chaos, recrimination, and fragmentation that we did beginning in, you know, beginning with the Trump election, but it wasn't caused by Trump necessarily. Uh, so I guess my answer is yes and no, depending on which version of Cobbling you ask me about. Yeah. And it's so telling that you talk about 2014, 2015, because I think probably those are the years that I, that I, name check that I year check on this show probably more than any other because we talk about culture war stuff so often. And I really trace it back to around 2014. I started noticing this. So Megan, what is your list of 2014's greatest uh, hits of uh, the impending catastrophe? Well, I've probably blocked out the actual news stories, but I just try to think about where I was. I was writing a column for the LA Times. So I wrote an opinion column there from 20 from 2005 to 2016, basically. And, you know, I had been writing, you know, kind of just my normal kind of writing I've been doing my whole career, like basically liberal left-leaning 
normal sort of educated white middle class sensibility, but I was pretty counterintuitive and I would like to, you know, poke holes in, in the left as well as the right. And it was received always pretty well. It was pretty clear that I was like a liberal on that opinion page and the people on the right often hated me and the people on the left usually agreed with me. Um, and I started to notice suddenly if I wrote about certain things, I was getting real in real trouble, uh, quote unquote, like in the in the digital sphere, especially in the kind of with the feminist blogs um, and places like Jezebel, obviously places like Gawker. And I had always considered myself a feminist. I mean, I'm a Gen Xer. I was like, you know, born in 1970. That was very much the sort of free to be you and me sensibility. And um, suddenly it wasn't cutting it anymore for a lot of younger women. And so I started to notice that on these blogs, there was suddenly arose this whole kind of vernacular around, um, you know, mansplaining and toxic masculinity. And there was this kind of casual misandry, they were calling it ironic misandry. And it really uh, flew in the face of everything I understood to be a kind of feminist outlook. And I didn't understand why, even though women were never doing better in most by most metrics, it had never been a better time to be a woman. Suddenly, the narrative was that it had never been a more sexist, misogynist time in, in the history of Western civilization. <laughs> so that's the long answer to your question. What happened in 2014? That. That, no, that is great, because that really dovetails nicely with what I've been learning. So even since I wrote the Atlantic article, like I finished the text of that in February, and it came out April 11th. Even since then, I've learned a lot. And so let's go through this, this, through some chronology here. So the, the, the central part, the central uh, landmarks in the, in the article are that in 2009, um, Facebook adds the like button, Twitter adds the retweet button, and both platforms copy it. So like and retweet becomes very popular across the internet around 2009 to 2011 in that area. Um, that's the change that I focused on because that makes everything much more engaging and it enables much greater realms of virality. Then back when Facebook first came out, you just put pictures up of your, you know, your kids or your the band that you went to see, and people go to your page. It, it wasn't early social media was not viral or explosive or bad for democracy, and, and things start to change in two thousand nine. But there's a there's a lot of other changes. A, a really important one that I missed is what is called threaded comments. And so a lot of people forget that it used to be, you know, if Barack Obama put up a post. Lots of people could say what they want after the post, and if somebody says something you disagreed with, well, you know, you had you could you could kind of disagree with the commenter because you could say, as so and so said, you know, up thirty you know thirty posts ago. But it's in twenty thirteen that Facebook introduces threaded comments, which means you can specifically reply to any comment, and this is huge because. Before then, it, you have a celebrity, let's say, saying something, and you know people have a chance to chime in. But your comment isn't going to become famous. Your comment isn't going to start something. But after threaded comments, now any nobody, uh, any troll, any jerk can say something nasty to anybody else who commented. And then basically Facebook is saying, hey, why don't you guys fight it out in the comments? That would be really fun. That'll be really fun to watch. And so then it becomes much more of a blood sport. And, you know, the central idea of one of the central ideas of my essay was that communication is good, you know, linking people together for free so they can talk, you know, you don't have to pay long distance charges, you know, that's, that's a good thing. But, but instead, what happened was, w w people got used to communicating, but it wasn't private, it was performative. 
And basically, Facebook and other platforms said, how about if you all communicate for free, but in the center of the Roman Colosseum, and we'll fill the stands with advertisers, you know, and other onlookers, but you guys just fight, you generate content, and we'll make money the more content you generate. So that, that's what really happened beginning in 2009 to 2011. But I'm sorry, but yes, the threaded comments is what really makes it the Roman Colosseum. So that's 2013. Okay, now is where, now the, now the events start coming fast and furious. So that famous first global cancellation uh, on the airplane, you know who I'm talking about? Oh, uh, Justine Sacco, of course. You got it, Justine Sacco. So that's December of 2013. So that's really the, you know, one of the first major global events. So we get the threaded comp, not that this was caused by threaded comps. I'm just saying the, the, the whole feeling of the internet changes around the end of 2013 into 2014. So we start with Justine Sacco. In March of 2014, we have Brendan Eich. So Brendan Eich was uh, promoted to CEO of uh, Netscape or Mozilla, I think it was. And someone digs up that he had made a $1,000 contribution to the one of the organizations in 2008 in California that was opposed to gay marriage. I can't remember what the resolution was or which way it went. The point is he'd made a thousand dollars. Oh, that was the donation. proposition Prop 8, which was vote yes. It was very confusing because if you voted no, you were actually for gay marriage. So it was very clever the way they did that. But the point is he had, he had given a thousand dollar contribution in 2008 to the side that was not in favor of gay marriage. And so, of course, this is the side that most people were on at the time. This is the side that in some sense Barack Obama was on at the time. In any, in any event, the point is, in 2014, the internet is now different, and we get grievance archaeology. And so within 11 days, he is, the pressure on, on uh, uh, Mozilla to fire him, or at least not go through with this, is so strong, he resigns. So that was another like global, or certainly national event that we had not seen before. And that just took 11 days to get to, to, for, for a mob to get him out of office. So that's March. In August of that year, we get Gamergate. Now, it's a really big, complicated thing that I don't fully understand. But the point is, you get these like mob dynamics, mobbing these, you know, these women who were on, they were, I guess they were somehow in the gaming industry and had written something. So I don't even know the details. The point is, this is like, you know, the, the like World War One of, of the internet, as I understand it. So Gamergate is 2014. Actually, in May of 2014 is when Greg Lukianoff came to see me. We had met through a mutual friend, but we didn't really know each other. And he just asked if he could talk to me about some weird stuff he was seeing on campus. That, so this is May 2014. Okay. And he's your co-author for Coddling of the American Mind. That's right. Say. He's yeah. the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And he had been fighting for student free speech rights since around 2002 or so. He became uh, president of FIRE. And, it, and suddenly things changed right around 2014. He says, suddenly it's the students who are asking for protection from words, books, speakers, ideas, safe spaces, microaggression training. All that was new. It wasn't there in 2012. So, and then there's a lot more that happens in, in 2014. I mean, there are other events, obviously Ferguson, uh, Michael Brown. That's not an internet event per se, but of course, it, 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 you know, the internet propels things more. The point is 2014 is a turbulent year, but there's all these little things that are kind of like canaries in the coal mine or, or warnings about what was to come. Uh, they weren't there in 2012, but by 2015, they're now very common. Okay. Okay. So you noticed all of this. How did it sort of, I mean, it, it co we know how it coalesced in, in coddling, but, you know, in terms of where we are now, is it worse? I mean, it does, I have, to, I, my mind is sort of spinning as you kind of unspool this timeline, because I don't mean to sound like histrionic. And I actually, I hate when people are that way, but it just seems terrible all the time. 
the world. I'm not even talking about the actual, like, you know, forget like how you feel about abortion rights, whatever. Like that's its and own Ukraine category and of everything terrible. Else. Yes, yeah, the real terrible right. stuff, yes, is terrible. But this is kind of like amorphous, impossible to to pin down to sort of, you know, aura of despair. That's right. And yes, and, and we can highlight, we can sharpen the, the perception there. Um, those who are old enough to remember what the 1990s were like. Um, so Great. so 90- good. Yeah, so it was good. so good. You know, now, the now music was that. good, beer and coffee were getting really good. But no, but there was an incredible sense of possibility. You know, I grew up, I'm, I'm a little older than you. I was born in 1963. So I remember, you know, I remember the Cold War, not the, not the like hide under your desk part that the older baby boomers remember. But you know, I remember thinking, you know, I don't think there'll be a nuclear war this year. But what are the odds we're going to go 50 years with that one? That seemed very unlikely. I mean, it seemed likely that life was going to end. It was just a question of when. And then suddenly we're relieved from that in 1989 and to 1992. You know, it all falls apart and, and freedom breaks out. There's even peace between Israel and the Palestinians for a while. I mean, like everything was amazing. And then the Internet is coming in and it's amazing. And, you know, and the idea all the way through, all the way through from the early 90s through 2011, which is the Arab Spring, there was just this pervasive sense that the future was going to be fantastic, and especially for democracy, like people power. You know, this is the end of dictatorships. This is the end of uh, of authoritarianism. It's going to be democracy from here on in. Of inequality, in a way. Well, inequality was more complicated because some eco- economists, like Robert Frank, were pointing out that a winner take all. Any time you've got a winner take all market, you get enormous concentration of wealth. And Robert Frank wrote uh, a book. Well, what was it called? But he pointed this out in the 1980s, before the internet, that the economics of music had changed so that Michael Jackson could make $50 million on an album. You know, the music market was expanding, but the number of people who could profit was shrinking. Right. Uh, oh, of so course. So the internet that, was, not, the, it was never going to bring us, yeah. It was right. ne- the perception, though, was that suddenly we would all be, you know, equal, we would have equal opportunity because everybody could make a record and potentially be Michael Jackson. Oh, yes. It was a very oh, naive assumption. That's that's yeah, my point. Yeah. Yes. Oh, so I see. Oh, well, we certainly... Like a quality of voice, yes. So yeah, I was sorry, I was going off on a tangent about economic inequality. Oh, I didn't, yes, I didn't think qual- about economic anything in the nineties. Okay, yes. Okay, okay. <laughs> I was a little older than you. I was thinking about economic stuff in the nineties. <laughs> okay. But um, yeah, so it was just this glorious period, and the internet was, you know, I mean, it was like being around when fire was discovered or electricity. <laughs> it was just endless possibility, uh, and that goes all the way up to twenty eleven. You know, up, up to twenty eleven, we really thought that this was just a magnificent space, and 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 the the millennials, you know, so Europe. So I'm technically baby boomer. Um, mm-hmm. You are certainly smack oh, in the I'm middle of Gen X. Definitely Gen X. Yeah, you're like Douglas. Yeah, you're Copeland. Gen X. You're you're like Douglas Copeland, who it was a baby boomer, who of course was the author of the book Generation X. So he kind of oh, okay, okay, folded him into you. yeah, yeah, uh, our ex cohort. But okay, but it's important here. The generations are important because if we go back to twenty eleven. We didn't have the term Gen X, I mean, sorry, Gen Z. Gen Z were little kids at the time, uh, under 10. They were like, you know, they were what? I guess they were uh, about seven or eight years old. No, I'm sorry, no, 12 at the time. But we were all talking about the millennials. And by then, the millennials had started all these companies. The millennials were incredible. You know, of course, we made jokes about them, as every generation does. But they they were changing the world. They were doing big things. And this, all of this is a huge contrast to now. When what we have is this dark, awful internet, um, obviously lots of great stuff happens on it. I mean, it still is an amazing thing. 
attention. But especially the social media space and a lot of them are just horrible spaces where nasty people say nasty things that are not based in truth with no accountability. Um, and the generation, this is just occurring to me, I'll just put this out there, um, probably wrong on this, but it seems to me that when that the, that the that Gen Z hasn't really done anything yet, that is other than social justice activism, because that's what a lot of them go into, other than trying to say everything's terrible, we have to change everything. Now, obviously, on climate change, there's some truth to that. But my point is that we used to have an optimistic internet and an incredibly capable young generation, millennials. And now we have a very pessimistic internet. And we have a young generation that has extraordinary levels of anxiety, depression, and fragility that seems to be focused almost entirely on influencing each other. So they don't create, they're not creating anything that leaves the closed system of, of, the, of their prestige economy. Um, and I think is headed for failure. So yeah, things are dark and they really took a turn in the early 2010s. Okay, let's understand how old these cohorts are exactly. So we know Gen X, let's go way back because people really do get confused about this. Okay, so Gen X was is born between like what, 65 and 81? And 81. Yeah, okay. let's just go. I mean, yes, yeah, please. none of these are hard cutoffs, but no, the but most, I, this is my favorite if we go thing, to Pew, so, yeah, okay. yeah. So if we go to Pew, if you go to the, uh, I'll just do it by memory, but uh, Pew, the Pew survey, you know, they, they are experts in this. Uh, so I'll just tell you, I think I, the years that they give um, are that the baby boomers were from 1946 to about 1965, I think it is, are the boomers. And then Gen X is uh, 66 to 81. It's a very short generation. Um, and then 82 is generally thought to be the first year of the millennials. And when Greg and I were writing our, our um, Atlantic article, we thought the college students were millennials because there was no end date. They didn't know when the, the end date was. But soon after that, it became clear, wait a second, the kids in college now, and, I, and, and by 2017, it was clear, uh, the kids in college now are very different. They're not millennials. And so um, Jean Twenge was one of the first to really call attention to this with her book, iGen, and she put that forward as the name. And she said 1995 is the year, is the first birth year of iGen. And that actually, that actually matches what, with what we saw on campus. But Pew, Pew says it's 97. Okay, so iGen is the same as Gen Z. Exactly the same, that's right. Okay, yeah. so 95 to, and then- Well, that's what, that's what Jean Twenge said. Although Pew says it's 97, I think it's 96, whatever. None of these are hard cut. Okay, so, so they were but, born in 96, and then how long do they go on for? Well, we don't know. There, oh, we don't but know when the end date is. There's nothing, wait, okay. But what's, sorry, what's Gen Y? Is there a Gen Y? I've heard no, of that. No, that was an early term for the millennials. Because oh, after okay. Gen X, after Gen X comes what? And people for a while said Gen Y. But then it became no millennials. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah. There's so it Gen, goes. There's big, nothing after big, Gen Z right now. Well, there, uh, some people are calling it Generation Alpha, but we don't know when it starts. Uh, just because you know, we're, if we're already at Z, we have to go back to the beginning of the alphabet. So the started. next one might be called Gen Alpha. All right. Not a lot of runway there. Okay. So the babies being born now are they technically? They have. Not well, we don't know. Been, they have not know. yet been categorized. So we're not going to assign. We're not go going to assign them uh, a demographic at birth. Okay. Yes. And so generations used to be calculated based on the major things that were happening in the world. So obviously, World War II was the giant cut point. Uh, and if you're born after World War II, you're very different from if you were born even in 1943, let's say. So it used to be like what happened in the world. Um, but now it seems it's the technology that shapes your brain and your social relations. So the millennials were shaped by the internet. But Gen Z, I believe, was shaped by the fact that they were the first people in human history to get onto social media in middle school. That is, they actually went through puberty 
um, immersed in a fake artificial social network that made them anxious and status conscious 24 hours a day. I mean, even while they're sleeping, they're probably dreaming about it. So that's why we see the, I, I think, my, my claim is, that's why we see the very sudden skyrocketing rates of depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicide that begin right around 2012. Um, suicide begins a couple years earlier, uh, but the depression anxiety stats are very clear. As soon as the girls get on Instagram, which is 2012, they all move on to Instagram. Um, that's when the rates of depression anxiety go shooting up and they keep going up and they're continuing to go up before COVID, during COVID and after COVID. That's where we are. So, yeah, that's so interesting because I think that we tend to minimize words like anxiety and depression when they come from certain kinds of people. You know what I mean? Like there's a hyperbole around um, like mental health when certain you see certain kinds of people talking about it online or whatever, like, oh, I'm so I'm going to kill myself or I'm so, you know, I'm, you know, I, I need to I need to practice self-care because otherwise, oh, self-care. Yeah. right. But but actually, I think that so so what you have actually found, like these are real like this is clinical depression and anxiety. This is not just some kind of new definition of it that's arisen in a kind of virtual sense. That's right. So in 2015, when Greg and I published our article, a lot of people said, come on, this is just, you know, Gen Z. Well, they didn't know Gen Z. The kids today, they're just so comfortable talking about it. They just they say they're depressed on surveys, but that's a good thing. They're willing to admit it. And all the way up until, you know, when Gene Twenge published IGEN in 2017, people said it then too. They said, come on, this is not real. This is just self-report data. Um, but it turns out, if you look at behavioral data, which is hospital admissions for self-harm, this is not self-report, this is hospital records in the US and the UK and Canada, they all show exactly the same thing, um, which is that the boys go up a little, not much, because self-harm is not a boy thing. But the girls go from relatively flat throughout the early 2000s to all of a sudden, in 2012, there's like, it's a hockey stick. They just, they suddenly start going to the hospital for self-harm. Um, suicide data, actually, I'm sorry, the pivot for self-harm is like 2010. Uh, but it's, it's all, it's, all of this is the early 2010s, around 2010. And um, uh, suicide, there's a weird dip in suicide in 2009 for some reason. So sometimes it looks like 2009 is the pivot, but like 2010, 2011 goes back to where it was. And then it's around 2011 um, that you start seeing the clear upturn in suicide. So, um, so yeah, this isn't just self-report. This is hospital admissions for self-harm, and this is completed suicides. And when you talk about self-harm, are you talking about things like cutting primarily? Mm -hmm. Mostly. That's okay. the main one, yeah. I mean, because another thing that people talk about is the way that cutting has replaced eating disorders in a way. Like, you know, in my time, it was anorexia. Uh, but uh, so cutting has kind of, you know, in terms of like a way of coping with anxiety, I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't still eating disorders. Obviously, there are. But um, I wonder if you have thoughts about that. Oh, I do. Yes. I used to teach Psych 101 when I was at the University of Virginia. Uh, so I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm a social psychologist. But I, you know, I can read the literature and I can read the studies and, and try to make sense of them. Anxiety disorders are highly heritable. But the interesting thing about them is which anxiety disorder you have could be very different from your parent. So, uh, you know, so some people develop, uh, they inherit genes for anxiety disorders. Uh, and if you're, you know, if your father had an anxiety disorder, PTSD, let's say, from being in the Vietnam War, you know, most people didn't develop PTSD, but those who were prone to anxiety maybe did. Or if your mother had an eating disorder, well, you, you're likely to have the, a genetic predisposition, but you might get some, you might get generalized anxiety disorder or social phobia 
or as you say now, um, it may be cutting. It may be the self self harm. Self harm is not an attempted at suicide. It is an anxiety disorder. It's, an, it's a way to regulate anxiety. So I think what you said makes sense because I've been puzzled that I don't hear that much about eating disorders. I mean, you know, I, in the '90s it was a huge topic, um, and I don't even know whether it's gone up or down. I should look at that. But it's not. It's not that it's been skyrocketing. It's self harm that's been skyrocketing. Right. Well, the eating disorder thing is is interesting because a lo- I've had a lot of discussions on here about the you know tra- gender youth medicine and you know the spike and the spike in in kids with. Yeah, transgender identities and, and I'm when not going to well I uh is that 2017 I mean I, my audience is going to laugh at me because I I promise I'm going to stop talking about this because I've had so many conversations about it but there is an overlap between anorexia and gender dysphoria it's it there's a big correlation um and that's oh, t- something, okay yeah well I well, mean I'm not an expert sense. so and I think so there the whatever the you know body dysmorphia is the thing driving anorexia a lot. Like you, you think you're, I mean, this is, I'm being really reductive here, but you think you're fat when you're not. And so gender dysphoria, it's not the same thing as dysmorphia, but it's, you feel that you're in the wrong sex. Anyway, I'm being extremely, I'm oversimplifying this hugely, but um, yeah, I, that's it. So if you, if you ask what happened to anorexia, you might wonder if it's kind of gone into this uh, tra- trans, space anyway but we can we can we can uh, put put a pin in that for for a minute but you know you have talked a lot about how the fact that these kids are on screens all day long means that the bullying goes on 24 hours a day and and you've also talked about how girls because their screen interactions are very social whereas boys are often playing video games that the the mental health consequences tend to come into play when there are social when there's social friction can you say more about that? Yeah. So first, so let me just suggest to readers. So if you go to thecoddling.com and then you click on, you click on, we've got a whole page. If you go to the solutions tab and then go to um, better social media. So we have there links to Google documents that lay out exactly what has happened uh, in terms of the mental health stats. And then the what's the evidence that social media is a contributing cause. Uh, and so the so the um, the key thing here is to keep in mind that uh, childhood development is 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 a mammal thing. Like it's an evolutionary thing. Like play, we evolved to play. All animals play. They must have a lot of play in order to wire up their brains. And for humans, a lot of that play is social. It's it's pretend games. It's it's playing. What's it like to be a man or a woman or at war or being you know or taking care of uh, of your younger sister, whatever it is. Um, we need huge amounts of varied experience, uh, especially between the ages of seven and twelve or thirteen. That's a kind of a, a sensitive period for cultural learning. And then you go through puberty, and your brain changes a lot and kind of locks down into a particular configuration. So that's what's always happened for you know millions of years for young humans. Um, and all of a sudden, beginning um, around twenty, around two thousand nine, when the iPhone becomes very popular, you know, comes out in two thousand seven. But kids don't have them until around 2009, 2010, they start getting them. By 2013, 2014, most kids have, um, at least they have access to an iPhone or an iPad or they're, they're on their screens, you know, a lot. You and I watch too much television, but you couldn't take the TV out with you to the playground. And if yeah. you go to a playground Very now, heavy. you'll see. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Maybe that's right. We didn't have flat we didn't screen have a remote TVs. Control. To, yeah, we, yeah, that's right. That's right. You had to get up out of your chair that's to change right. the channel. But, you know, but if you go to a playground now, you know, I visit my kids' middle schools in New York City, 
And what you see is you see a lot of groups of kids sitting around looking at phones together. Now, sometimes it, it's a little bit social because they're talking about the phones, um, but you don't see as much play as you used to. So I, I think there are two huge reasons for the depression epidemic. Uh, one is the loss of childhood free play, and then the other is social media. But they're related because part of the reason kids stopped playing, it's not just that adults freaked out and thought they'd be kidnapped if they ever went outside unsupervised. Um, it's that nothing is as interesting as a screen. Every parent knows this. You take your kids on vacation, you can take them to Niagara Falls, you can do, well, maybe Disney World, maybe, but most places you take them, it's not as interesting as the phone that they have in the back in the hotel room. So the, I think of phones as experience blockers. We put our kids on experience blockers around the age of nine or 10 in this country. And from that point on, they're not going to have much experience other than through the phone. And, and the phone is a kind of experience. It's not that it's zero. But we're omnivores. And, you know, if we told our kids, you can have rice, just rice, as much rice as you want, rice all day long, you know, they get scurvy within a year. All our kids would have scurvy. And we'd say, well, I don't know what's going on. Like, oh, I don't think it's the phone. It's like, what's the proof? Um, so anyway, so there are a lot of mechanisms aside from the specific effects of social media. And those effects are mostly not gendered up till this point. But now, as you were saying, as you were raising, it's, it's that boys and girls do different things on their phones. And the data shows clearly, and this is Pew survey data on time use, that the boys gravitated to video games and YouTube. Uh, all kids like watching videos, but boys especially spend time on YouTube. And then video games, multiplayer video games are actually not harmful. Kids get addicted, they'll pay 10 hours a day, that's bad. But, you know, two to four hours a day of, of, of forming groups with other boys to kill other groups of boys is actually fun and healthy. So even I'm violent video games. So we got past that social panic. That turned out not to be true. That's right. There's there's very little evidence that playing violent video games makes people more violent. But boys, look, boys play, boys have always gravitated to play war. And that's why they'll do pick up sports games more than girls. Um, so video games are not really the problem. So boys have not been decimated. Rather, boys' mental health has, has plummeted also. But the evidence that I've been reviewing does not link it to social media or even to electronics as clearly as it does for girls. As soon as girls got online, as soon as girls got their devices, they zoomed, they all focused on, I, I mean, initially Facebook to some extent, but then as soon as Instagram comes out, they go for Instagram and Tumblr. And Tumblr is one that we should talk about because I just learned, I just learned about the incredible role Tumblr played in creating this kind of political craziness. And uh, the trans anyway, the, stuff, huge, oh, huge yeah, tell, okay, transgender stuff. Well, okay. We can pivot to that whenever you want. No, no, but yeah, no. I want to be no, sure we get to that. You got to keep me from pivot. Every time I do it, okay. just so you know, it's like Pavlovian, just pivots. a shock. Okay. Deliver a shock. Okay. Uh, but a yes, loud noise. Tumblr is, uh, is very instrumental in that. But yeah, the, certainly the social justice ideology just gen in general um, was really germinated in, in Tumblr. And it's not something I've actually studied a lot because I'm afraid to even go into it. But yeah. Have you been on Tumblr? <laughs> I've never been on Tumblr. But yes, but from what I hear, uh, that is a major piece of the puzzle because what I've, what I've learned from looking internationally is that um, is that the rise of depression and anxiety is all of exactly the same in all of the English-speaking countries. So in, in you know, Canada, well, in Canada and the UK, it's indistinguishable uh, from the US. Australia, New Zealand, it's the same patterns, just a little bit delayed and not quite as intense, uh, in part because the, in New Zealand, is the last English-speaking country where they let kids play outside without supervision. They even let them climb trees, whereas we stopped that long ago, like, because, you know, what if you fall? You can't climb a tree. So it's the same throughout all the English-speaking countries. But, uh, and there's some evidence that it's global, but it's not as clear. 
And so there's some other things going on that are unique. To, it's not unique to USA. That's the interesting thing. But it does seem to be particular to the Anglosphere. Um, so I don't know if Tumblr, I'd be interested to find out if Tumblr had this reach among girls in the French-speaking countries or German-speaking countries. I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I do actually hear from people in in Europe in those countries uh, from time to time. And it does seem to be catching on there. But, you know, I want to ask something like, again, you're not a clinical psychologist, you're a social psychologist, but is there something about just the sort of cognitive makeup of girls on balance, obviously, not every single one of us, but that makes us just more, I mean, obviously we're, we're interested in people and not things. Okay. We know, we know that, but like, is there something about, um, it, it, this, this kind of self branding and it, it ends up looking like narcissism. It's very easy to take a step back from this and say, oh my gosh, you're just a bunch of narcissists, but that's too simple. There's a whole bunch of things. Um, and it's funny, you know, in some ways we know less than we used to because we used to be able to talk about things. And now it's so dangerous to talk about sex differences, even though there are a lot of sex differences. The key, the key idea that makes it easier to talk about sex differences, I think, is that sex differences in ability are generally pretty small and not that common. But sex differences in interest are very large, very common. Uh, they're the same across cultures, sometimes they're the same across species. Uh, and it makes sense. So you said the interest in people versus things. Uh, you know, we know from Simon Baron Cohen's work and many others, we all start off as girls um, in utero. And then um, around the 10th week, if there's a Y chromosome, you get a little bit of testosterone. That begins changing the body so that the, you know, the labia become the scrotum and, and all sorts of physical changes. But it also changes the brain, it begins changing the brain to be the male pattern. And the male pattern is more interested in things and systems. Men are higher on systemizing. Women are higher on empathizing. Um, and this has a lot of implications for the social media era because the big difference in motivations, it's sometimes called agency versus communion. Girls are more interested in communion. It's a, it's a more dominant motive. And boys are more interested in agency, that is, doing something. And when you look at what boys and girls do together, this is, I'm sorry, when they're allowed to play on their own, in single-sex groups, what you get is boys do things. They don't sit around and talk. They do things. Um, and girls largely sit around and talk. Girls are practicing their social skills to commune, to form relationships. And boys are practicing their physical skills for, for war and, and domination and building and hunting and other physical things. So when boys, when girls and boys are given the internet, the boys say, hey, cool, we can have the most amazing battles with incredible guns. And they go off and do that. But girls who want to talk, they say, oh, we can talk all the time about other girls. Um, and, um, and so, of course, it, it can, you know, there are environments in which it would be non-toxic, but social media, and particularly Instagram, I think, I don't know Tumblr, but some of them are really just good for gossip about girls who aren't there. And what's especially devastating, I think, is anything that quantifies your status. This is just so cruel. You know, we're all subject to this. You and I are adults. And I, I'll just confess that, you know, I, I was sort of like, off of Twitter for, uh, you know, for a long time, like barely posting. But once my Atlantic article went up, like, I really wanted to know how I'm doing and what are people saying? And what are people saying about the thing that someone said about me? And I get sucked back into it. You know, it's hard to resist seeing how you're doing. And when you're new to, you know, when you're when you're 12 years old, and you're just beginning to go through puberty, and everything's changing, and you know, you're in a new school when you're 11, maybe in middle school. It's just so horrible that girls now go through puberty on social media. And there's, there's new research just published by uh, Amy Orban and, and um, 
um, Andrew Shabilsky showing that it's particularly uh, in the ages of 11 to 13 that girls are damaged or they're, rather that they suffer from being on social media. That's a sensitive period. For boys, it's 14 to 15 uh, because boys go through puberty a bit later. But we've got to keep girls off puberty. I'm sorry. We've got to keep girls out of social media until they're done with puberty at the very least. Well, and I, I'm curious like how this was different in our time before social media. Like, so our mutual friend, Lenore Skadezi, who's been on this show, has talked about uh, how when kids play together unsupervised, I mean, her whole, what she, her, her work is in this idea of free range parenting and letting kids play by themselves. And she's done incredible work there. But she talks about how when kids are left to their own devices, they will organize with teams. They will decide who's in charge. The older ones will help the younger ones along. And there is a kind of, there's a real value in sorting, sorting things out on your own. But so we see that with boys, and maybe there's even opportunities to do that in a virtual space if boys are playing video games or whatever. So what I'm trying to think about is whether, like, even it, it, when girls were kind of getting together in clusters and having their mean girl dynamics in real life, was there a kind of um, kind of self-regulating mechanism or just a kind of check? It was Were there checks and balances on behavior that existed in the real world that are just absent in this virtual world. Uh -huh. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, we evolved in small groups with small group dynamics in which kids were never sorted into all the 11-year-olds together. The kids were um, playing in mixed age groups. Uh, the girls were hanging out more with the women and learning the skills of being a woman. The boys were actually hanging out with the women too early, but then they have to go through initiation rites. They have to learn how to be a man. So there was a lot of guidance, a lot of interaction across age groups, um, and everybody was exposed to ideas that were more than 10 minutes old. Um, everybody was exposed to ideas that had been developed by people in previous years and centuries and that were passed down to them. And that all kind of ended in the early 2010s. If, if you think about the amount of the input channels into a kid's brain, you know, wh what's the total number of bytes or bits that can get in through the eyes and ears? And then what percentage of that total capacity is taken up? by posts on social media that were created within the last hour or last day. There's just not much room for any kind of wisdom. There's not much room for any kind of guidance in how to be a man or a woman, how to be a human being. Um, they're just drowning in trivia produced by other kids very recently. So there are a lot of ways in which everything has changed about childhood. It all changed in the early 2010s. It wasn't like this in 2008. And we're, we're a biological species that has this incredibly complex social developmental pathway and when you had girls meeting in small groups and talking about other girls, yes, they were practicing social skills and they were trying to figure out what are the limits and when do we show compassion? Um, and it plays out at a certain speed. And I think there's a speed limit. And so, uh, you know, maybe you can deal with five or 10 different scenarios or conflicts in a day, but I don't think you can deal with 500. I don't think you can deal with just a river of stupid conflict over nothing every day, all day, day after day. So I think we we put our kids, you know, it's almost as if we said, hey, you know, I don't see any reason why kids couldn't develop in outer space. Um, let's just raise kids in a zero gravity environment orbiting the moon. I'll bet they'll turn out okay. And my guess is that their heart would be malformed, their eyes wouldn't work right. Like you can't grow up in, a, in an environment as radically different as the one we evolved in um, and come out okay. And that's, I think, what changed, uh, you know, around 2010, plus or minus. We, we've been raising kids down the social equivalent of orbiting the moon. 
we're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word, actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. So we're recording this on May 9th. Last week, you spoke in front of a Senate Judiciary Committee about this mental health crisis, um, you know, especially among teenage girls, like you've been saying. How did you end up in front of that committee? Well, because um, Greg and I wrote this book, The Coddling, and then immediately some people challenged us and said, oh, come on, you know, there's not really an epidemic. So I, I created a Google Doc where I brought together, because I was confused, because you, you see all these conflicting studies. So I brought together all the Google, all the published studies that show that that show the rates of change. Um, and then other people said, oh, come on, it, it doesn't, it's not caused by social media. The correlation of screen time, of, you know, screen time with, um, with uh, depression uh, is, you know, 0.03. And that's the same size as the correlation of depression with eating potatoes, according to the, the most famous study, the most important study here done by Amy Orban and Andrew Shabilsky. Uh, that was published, that came out in January 2019, right after a book came out. And for a minute, I was thinking, whoa, you know, what if we got this wrong? Like, this would be horrible if, if I got this wrong. Because, you know, I was, this was my domain in the book, was I'm the psychologist, I had to review the research. If I got this wrong and social media isn't the cause, then I've done a terrible thing. Um, so I created a Google Doc with all the research on linking uh, you know, what's the connection. And it turns out, and again, if, if, if listeners go to thecoddling.com and go to our better social media page, you'll find these Google Docs. It turns out the correlational evidence is very consistent. The correlations are around uh, 0.1, um, not for screen time, but for social media. Um, when, you, when you zoom in on the correlation between um, social media and depression uh, for girls, it's even larger. 
So the point is there is a consistent correlation. Anyway, there's a lot more I could say about this. It's all in the documents. Um, experiments show the same thing. It's not just correlational evidence. So because I was curating those documents, I think I was able to see beyond the constant citing of, a, of a, this paper or that. So the debate is somebody says, oh, there's no effect because look at Smith and Jones. Like, you know, or if someone says, yes, there is an effect because look at, you know, the Johnson and, and Thompson. Um, but if you put them all together, you can see where and why there are effects and where they're not. Uh, and so for that reason, I've been writing about this. Uh, I wrote an article in The Atlantic uh, called the, the Dangerous Experiment on Teen Girls back in November. And because of that, Ben Sass, who I, I'd met once before and we'd spoken, um, he was very interested in what I'm doing. He, you know, he has uh, kids of his own who are Gen Z. Um, and he, uh, he invited me to testify in front of this uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, a subcommittee that he co-chairs with Chris Coons on, um, there was a hearing on platform, uh, the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act. Should Facebook and the other platforms be forced to share their data with regulators and academic researchers? Or is it okay for them to just cover up um, what's going on so that the rest of us have to just guess? We have no idea what's happening. So that's why I was testifying. And are you really seeing this as a crisis for girls? Because it, it was not too long ago that the um, you know there were people talking very seriously about a crisis among boys, which had come about because of the digital age. Christina Hoff Summers talked a lot about this, just that boys by nature are less likely to be able to sit still. And now that we have an economy and a society that's all about sitting still and staying at your desk and manual labor is, has, is not, there's not as much of it as there used to be. And so we really kind of got this idea that, that boys were falling behind for all kinds of reasons, having to do with technology. But is this the kind of like crisis digital crisis 2.0? Uh, how are you, how do you see it in relation to that? Yeah, it's complicated. Thanks for giving me the chance to clarify because I think I haven't been clear in the past. So the, um, you know, I remember when the, what was that report in the early nineties came out about how girls were in, girls were, you know, this, everything was bad for girls. When in fact, back then the trends were already starting that girls were doing better and better in school and boys were doing worse and worse. So since the nineties, boys have been falling behind. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. I, I, this is not my area of research, so I don't know them, but I do suspect the loss of role models, the loss of ideas of, of masculinity, um, is at least a, a contributor to it, but there are many other reasons. Um, so, so boys are absolutely falling behind. We you know we're closing in on 60% or more of college students are now girls. Most of the PhDs go to girls, uh, women. So absolutely there's a crisis for boys. And all of that was true before social media. All of that was true before 2010. And, and so the, all of that is true up through the millennial generation and, the, and, and for, for the beginning of Gen Z too. But things begin to change in the early 2010s. And, and I've been focused on the effect on girls for two reasons. Um, one is because the, the main reason that I'm focused on the girls is because the evidence that their declining mental health is linked to social media or anything electronic is much clearer for girls than it is for boys. So for boys, we, we spent so long investigating video games, and my, I'm not an expert there, but from what I've read about that literature, it's not conclusive. It certainly is not like a big effect that video games explain why boys are falling behind. So you know, there, there may be a contribution, but I, I, it hasn't jumped out as a big one. So the story for boys is just not as clear, and it's not linked to technology as clearly as, as social media for girls. As soon as the girls get on Instagram in 2012, boom, uh, depression begins to rise rapidly. Um, so that's why I'm focused on girls. I'm, but I'm just now, if you go to the bottom of uh, one of my Google Docs, uh, we have a new section, just put it in a month ago, 
Um, there's a nice there's a nice table of contents at the top. You can see all the different parts of the of the uh, of the review. But we have an appendix. Uh, appendix 6.1, what has been happening to boys since 2012? So I've just started to study the issue. Um, and here we even have to look, I've just asked my research assistant to look into falling, um, falling levels of testosterone and sperm counts. So something is going on for boys and men, and it's not just in the US, it's around the world. It could be plastics, it could be technology, who knows what it is, I, I just don't know. But I'm, I'm just starting to study that. And when these girls are having suicidal ideation or actually committing suicide. And again, I think we should be clear because I think people think that suicidal thoughts is tantamount to committing suicide. I mean, these are very different things. So, um, right. Suicidal thoughts are very, very common. Suicide is still thankfully very rare, but it's, uh, you know, a hundred percent more common than it was, uh, 10, 15 years ago. Right. So, and I, again, I don't know how much actual, you know, talking to, research subjects on the ground you've done, but are they saying things like, I, life is not worth living because my friends don't like me? Like how myopic is the thinking? Let's see. So in our Google Doc, we have, so I have not done much talking to Gen Z. You know, I, uh, I've been teaching MBA students at Stern. My kids are Gen Z and they're sick of me talking to them and they hate it when I talk to their friends. You know, but I read a lot and I read a lot of accounts and interviews with, with teenagers. Um, and th it is very clear. There is a pervasive sense of despair. Um, they, I've, I've given many talks at universities and high schools, uh, and I do get to meet with, with students then. And there is an extraordinary um, pessimism and despair compared to the millennial generation. Now, what some people sometimes say to me is, well, of course they're depressed. Like, look what's happening with the world and global warming and, you know, and, and um, school shootings and all sorts of things like that. But the, um, but the, the point I make in response is that um, people don't kill themselves because the world is going terribly. That has nothing to do with it. Um, when the White House changes hands, you know, if you're on the left and the, and, and the Republicans take over, you think, oh, my God, everything's going to be terrible. But you, the, the depression rate doesn't go up for Democrats. The suicide rate doesn't go up. Um, Emile Durkheim discovered 130 years ago, uh, when a country goes to war, the suicide rate drops. When there's a crisis, the suicide rate drops because that binds us together. Um, suicide, Durkheim said there's two kinds of suicide. In traditional societies, uh, you can feel that you're too tightly bound in and you commit suicide out of shame. But in Western societies, he said, um, we commit suicide out of too much freedom, uh, too little connection. We feel lost, disconnected. Uh, and that's what's happening now. So Gen Z is the most connected generation ever, which is why they're so depressed, because it's not real connections. They're connected on platforms that make them perform for points. Uh, and that block out takes so much time. They're on so many platforms. There's no time left to actually connect with anyone. So um, they're starving for actual connection. Uh, so it has nothing to do with global warming or school shootings. Uh, that doesn't make people kill themselves. It has to do with the sense of being isolated, alone, lonely. That's why they're killing themselves and thinking about suicide. Well, also, any bad thing that happens now, you hear about. Like there are, arguably, there are fewer bad things happening. There are fewer racist incidents now. Oh, yeah. Almost all the social indicators are improving. Right, yeah. than, than ever. But the fact is that anytime there is a racial incident, anytime anyone in America it, uses the N-word. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so, so that can explain the explosive spread of anger. Because now, whether you're on the right or the left, you, you are just drowning in video evidence of how horrible the other side is. So if we were talking about anger or polarization, I would say, yes, that's very relevant. But right now we're talking about depression. It has nothing to do with it. 
Um, whether you think that the world is racist or getting less racist, whether you think that women's rights are being guarded or being uh, you know, removed, that can make you angry. But anger is a positive emotion. Anger is localized primarily in the front left cortex, the approach circuits. Um, now, frustrated anger is unpleasant. We don't like it. But righteous anger shared with others, that's great. That feels good. That doesn't make you depressed. So, you know, whenever people say, well, of course they're depressed, look at, you know, I say, no, no, that has nothing to do with it. Tell me about their connections. Tell me about their social relations. And then we can talk about why they're depressed. Well, I want to shift this a little bit and talk about what we call the heterodox space, what we talked about earlier oh, yes. in this conversation. I mean, yes. you, you started the heterodox academy. I think you actually brought the word heterodox into the mainstream. So I don't know if we should thank you for that or... <laughs> curse you for that. <laughs> it's well, a, I, I ho- yeah, I hope it's a thanks. I no, hope it hasn't uh, blown up and, and uh, caused retrogression. No, it's good. I just think a lot of people, uh, a lot of normies still, they don't know what it means. So you, you've used the word and like, oh my God, is that a new like uh, sexual orientation or something like that? But, um, <laughs> so, um, but you started the Heterodox Academy uh, for to increase viewpoint diversity on, on campuses. And now there's this whole ecosystem of podcasters and YouTubers and Substack writers, um, you know, really trying to have nuanced discussions and, and you know, have, you know, there's thesis and antithesis and sense making. Uh, that's another word that comes up. So, you know, I know you and I've talked about this a little bit. It's, it's a really male dominated space. Um, this is something that I've started to think about more and more. And, you know, as, as, as I've told you, I'm, I'm going to talk more and more about starting this heterodox women's community of one form or another. But like, I, you know, you have been on every single one of these podcasts. You're very much a player in this space. Do you have any opinions about why there are so few women and how that might map on to the research that you're doing about about girls and technology? Sure. All right. So just very briefly, the history is... Um, um, I, I wrote a, a paper with some other social psychologists on the loss of viewpoint diversity in social psychology, um, and that came out in 2015, and that was sort of the origin of Heterodox Academy. Uh, Nick Rosencrantz, a law professor at Georgetown, had written a similar paper for law. Nick and I met for lunch in 2015 in New York City, uh, decided we should do something together. Nick came up with the idea of Heterodox Academy, which is the opposite of Orthodox Academy. So Nick made up the name. Chris Martin, a grad student in sociology at the time at Emory, uh, put, uh, put up the, uh, the, uh, the blog. I, I just bought the domain name. We had no staff. It was just a blog. So that's how it all started in 2015. Now, from the beginning, from the beginning, it was clear that about 80% of the, of the people involved and the interest, all that, there was a big gender skew. And it's always been mostly male. So your question is, why is that? And there are a lot of reasons for it. The, a small reason, but relevant, um, is that since the 70s, uh, there's been a sex difference in, in left-right, a growing sex difference. And we see this especially in Gen Z. Gen Z boys have not moved to the right particularly, but the girls have moved to the left a lot. So there's, a, uh, uh, there's, a, there's an increasing gap between, um, between left and right here. And, if you, and, and the, the heterodox space is really mostly a center-left to center-right thing. You know, there, are, there, are, there are only a few people in it, as far as I know, who would say that they're conservatives. Most, you know, as, as you said in, in your introduction, it was the exact same as I would have said, you know, I was always on the left, you know, I've only voted Democrat. I thought of myself as a center left person. Uh, but after a while, you know, you get attacked repeatedly yeah, by the left, right much adjacent, more than by the right. Don't you know? Ex- yeah, that's right. That's right. By basic geometry, if you're a, if you're a centrist, you're, you're right adjacent. 
So, so a small reason is just that many more women, especially young women, are firmly on the left, and therefore they're part of the camp that is, I think, politically committed to achieving outcomes, not to finding truth or having discussions. So there's a sex difference there. But the biggest one, the big, big reason, I think, is the one that goes very deep in, in gender psychology, um, which is that men are striving for prestige and reputation. That's what gives us um, uh, evolutionary success, success in the mating market. Men care a lot more about fame. And you see this, uh, you know, whether you go back to Sigmund Freud about what men and women want, why it is that men are, almost all comedians are men. Men like to show off. Women don't enjoy the limelight as much in that way to show off how clever they are, how strong they are, how dominant they are. Um, when you, if you look at, uh, I think the best scholarly work here goes back to that book, uh, You Just Don't Understand by... Uh, uh, Oh, um, Deborah. Yes, Deborah Tannen. Yes. So, yeah, anyone curious here should definitely read Deborah Tannen's wonderful book. You just don't understand. That was the um, uh, that book became very common in the '90s after the Clarence Thomas and Edith Hill conflict. Um, and she says boys and girls use language for different purposes. Boy, uh, girls are using language to connect, and boys are using it to show off and test and compete. So, for all those reasons, social media, which is all about platforms uh, and, and performing on a platform. Obviously, girls are performing on platforms for each other in, 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 you know, on Tumblr and other places. When we talk about who wants to get into a public fight um, or take on a public conflict, like a boxing match, that's just not appealing to a lot, of, a lot of women. And I think we should also bring in, for the same reasons, East Asians. We see very few East Asians involved in this. My wife is Korean-American, and she's pointed this out often, that it's just so antithetical to the Confucian ethos to say, look at me, look at me, you know, look how I'm showing off, how I'm smarter than him. Um, so interesting, I think we do see some South Asian, South Asian uh, cultures are very different from East Asian cultures, but the idea of showing off publicly is a much more a male thing. So there are a lot of reasons. Um, also just how much do you enjoy conflict? Um, boys enjoy it more than the public conflict uh, than girls. Obviously girls and boys are equally aggressive, a lot of research shows, but Boys' aggression is manifested, ultimately it's backed up by the threat of physical force, violence. Um, uh, you know, boys will challenge each other publicly, and if, it, and if the other boy doesn't rise to the challenge, then the challenger wins. Whereas girls' aggression is much more covert. It's much more about damaging another girl's uh, reputation or prestige or relationships. Um, so for all those reasons, the public display of, of smartness and conflict, that's, that's mostly male. That's mostly appealing to males. What do you think? See Oh, that's I never. Well, I that's a little bit different than how I've been thinking about it because I I don't I don't think about about speaking out publicly and you know registering dissent as showing off as much as uh, demonstrating um, an ability to withstand critique or attack. I so I think that you know if if you are going to speak out against your tribe, you are going to get penalties oh, from within full of your arrows. tribe. You're going to, because the thing is, it's the thing is like, right. You talk about this. Yes. Darts is the, is the metaphor you use in your Atlantic piece. But you know, the thing is we all, what we know about cancel culture is that you can't be canceled by the other side. You, you can only be canceled by your own side. If you get attacked, if you're on the left and you get attacked by a bunch of conservatives, that only increases your currency. That's good. So I think for women it's, you know, and there's also, you know, the, 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 you know, we the conventional wisdom is that women get attacked more online, and I, I, I okay, oh, all right. Oh, yeah. Women and African Americans get that, a lot more nastiness okay. online. Absolutely. Okay. 
Okay. So that's true. But on top of that, I think women on balance, not all of us are more sensitive to those social penalties. We get more, we, we get attacked more, but even more importantly, it, it hurts us more because we care about what other people think of us and we don't want other people to be hurt by what we say. So I think that that has resulted in fewer women sort of having these kinds of conversations, writing things that are going to make people mad at us, that are going to make other women mad at us. So, you know, really the whole the, the way that these kinds of tribal wars play out, they map right on to the way girls' socialization processes happen in adolescence, right? Like, you know, so if, if, you're, if you're trying to have like a, you know, a, a heterodox conversation and you get, you know, and your girlfriend somewhere on Facebook is mad at you, that taps right into something that was happening, you know, in, in seventh grade in a way that maybe it doesn't. For, for boys and men. So I actually think that, you know, for those of us in Gen X who came of age talking and thinking, and if we're writers, writing our opinions without being beat up on Twitter, we, I think we, we developed a kind of, um, those of us who are lucky enough to have this, a certain sort of temperament, we developed an ability to withstand those kinds of appraisals. I just, you know, for me personally, some combination of my my particular temperament and having come of age as a writer in the early 1990s when I would write something that was controversial and maybe there would be angry letters to the editor, um, but that would be it. And in the meantime, it would have been great if people were mad at me, guess what? Good job, well done. The editor's gonna give you another assignment and you're gonna be on your way to having a career. So this is a really long-winded way of saying that I I want to create a space for women who want to talk about these things to find each other because I every day throughout the day I get emails from women and they say I've been kicked out of my Facebook group, I got kicked out of my book club. It's it's not only that they're having trouble in the workplace the way men do, but on top of it, it's their social interactions, it's their mom group. It's, you know, all these little little you know, social interactions and the nuances of things that that women notice. I often think of it as like bat signals. It's like, you know, women, you know, we have what we say out loud to each other, but there's so much going on, like, you know, in this kind of weird, like sonar, you know, who's who's stabbing who in the back? And I can't believe she said this or that. And so anyway, I think that there is, it's a combination of, it's a weird way that our sort of um, kind of cognitive, you know, traits have have intersected with this this digital manifestation, I think that's, and it's oh yeah, really I think that's powerful. Exactly, I, I agree with everything that you said. Um, I'll just add that um, you know, boys are more likely to be on the spectrum, even if they're not autistic. They, on average, just a normal boy um, is just more along the spectrum towards towards Asperger's or autism than, than is a normal girl. Part of what that means is that they're just less sensitive to what's going on around them. It's a constant joke in my family that my son and I are totally clueless about the social ramifications of things that we did or said. And my daughter, who's younger than my son, my daughter and my wife will look at each other at how incredibly clueless these, these males are. So yes, girls have just much better social radar, social sensitivity, and therefore they can be hurt more. They can be hurt more easily. So I agree with and and we're also timid. Like Greta Thunberg, for instance, has said that her autism is a great gift. I mean, whatever you think of her and the phenomenon surrounding her, but she is the reason that she can speak up the way she does is because she's oblivious 
to the ramifications of it. That's right. Yeah. So this actually calls to mind the advice. I, it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg who said she was given the marriage advice from her mother-in-law, I think it was. Uh, sometimes it helps to be a little deaf. Like just, you know, pretend you didn't hear something. Just let it go. Don't react. Um, and so boys, you know, it, it, so our, our cluelessness turns out to be a kind of a, a bit of an advantage. You know, when the, when the volume of social stuff gets multiplied a hundredfold in the last decade or two, it's kind of an advantage to be a little deaf, I suppose. So, so we can add that in to, totally, to what you're saying. Totally. I mean, and the other thing you notice, there are there are several black men in this space. There's John McWhorter, there's Coleman Hughes, there's Glenn Lowry. There are hardly any African-American women. There are hardly any women of color. And this is an intersectional, this is an exact example of you know, intersectionality, because if you are a woman and you're speaking up, you're going to get it, you're going to get pushback from other women. If you are a black woman, for instance, you're going to get pushback from other black people, black women. It's virtually impossible. Someone like Chloe Valdery has uh, yes, extraordinary courage. Chloe, that's right. And then in the, in the UK, interesting, there's a, in the UK, there's a parallel movement. There are a number of, of, of non-white uh, Brits who are organizing. So oh, Aisha, yes. Is, um, uh, I don't know Aisha, but I know I know Kemi Badenoch uh, and, and a few others. Um, so, but you're right. There, but there are very few. There are very few. So it, you're right, and it is an intersectionality thing. I think you're right. But I, so when I started this, when I started getting involved in this in 2015, when we launched Heterodox Academy, um, there was a lot of suspicion. There was a lot of people saying, "Come on, this isn't really a, a big problem. This is just a bunch of anecdotes." But by 2018, whenever I have private conversations with professors, whether male or female, they would say, "Yeah, I've seen it. I've suffered from it." Um, you know, I gave a lecture on this. Oh, you know, uh, someone I know, I, I won't say at what school, just told me she, she teaches a nutrition program and, and she can't even speak about BMI anymore, body mass index, because she's accused of fat shaming to simply suggest that a high BMI is bad. You know, her students will attack her for this. So um, what I'm saying is seven years ago, I think a lot of women were not, it wasn't clear to them why they need to get involved in this fight. It, it was abstract. But now everyone has seen it. Everyone has felt it. And so I think we are seeing, I'm beginning to pick up a lot more receptivity from women that this is really, it's, it's, um, it's restrictive, it's painful, it's unjust, they feel unjustly treated. So yeah, I wish you luck and anything I can do to help you. I think that would be huge. If you can, if you can unlock women's voices here um, and, and, and encourage them to form communities in which they can speak up, I think we'd be very oh, powerful. Oh yeah, we're working on it. Well, okay, John, I know you have to go, but last question you have young or youngest children who are apparently tired of you interviewing them. I can imagine <laughs> yes. how how old are they first of all, and how do you imagine life for them in twenty years? Say, well, my son is fifteen, and he goes to Brooklyn Tech, a, a large public high school in New York City. My daughter is uh, twelve, and she goes to a middle school in New York City. Um, and they're doing okay with social media now. My son is now on Instagram. Um, I kept him off in sixth grade, and he didn't particularly want to be on it later in middle school, but he's, he's doing okay with it now. How, what's life going to be like for them? I, I go back and forth, depending on how I look at it, what perspective I look at it from. Because on the one hand, so far, my kids are mentally healthy, thank God. And uh, thanks to Lenore Skenazy, who I met when my wife and I, when we moved to New York in 2011, we met her soon after. Thanks to Lenore, we gave our kids more of a free-range childhood in, in Manhattan. You know, we had them walk to school early, go out and do errands on their own. Not a full free-range childhood, unfortunately, but at least we did something. So I think they're, they're in better shape, they're healthier, and I, so therefore, they're going to do better in competition with others because 
most of the people in their generation, certainly most of the girls, uh, or at least a third of the girls, are are suffer from depression and anxiety, and most of them are fragile and just undeveloped. On the other hand, I am extremely concerned about political chaos and collapse in this country. Um, I do think that the trends are all extremely bad. Um, Steve Pinker is right that the trends overall for humanity are good, especially on matters of like health and welfare and food production, everything else, rights. But sociologically and politically, I think the trends in the United States are horrific. And I thought that when I wrote the article, uh, the Atlantic article back in January, February, um, and it's gotten so much worse just in the last uh, last month since it's been published. Um, you know, the people, you know, those, the the the, uh, uh, the Roe versus Wade case, and the fact that people are now are now you know surrounding the houses of Supreme Court justices. Um, the the culture was escalating. I, I, I'm hopeful. Look, if things keep going the way they're going, then we're headed for political collapse. And this is not just me talking. This is uh, Barbara Walters' book, How Civil Wars Start. We are on the road that she describes. But that isn't to say that trends will continue. Um, Trends often do and usually do eventually turn around. So I go back and forth. You know, I have considered, you know, should we leave the country? But I would, I just wouldn't do that. I'm committed to this country. I love this country. I'm going to go down with the ship if it goes down. Um, But, and I, you know, and I, I, that's being a little too hyperbolic. You know, if, look, in Latin America, they've had political collapse. They've had authoritarianism alternate with democracy and people still live there. They don't. You don't flee just because your government is in bad shape. Uh, and I think that could well happen to us. We could become much more like a Latin American country with, you know, we're trying to have democracy with very weak and untrusted institutions, which we have not done before, but th- th- that might be what our future is. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm overall pessimistic, but I, I recognize that it's hard to predict the future and it's always been wrong to bet against America. It's probably wrong this time. So... I'm not optimistic about the future, but I, I don't fully buy my own pessimism, put it that way. I'm working it out as the way that the trends are going, but I'm doing everything I possibly can. Uh, and many others, including you, are doing everything they can to prevent that from happening. So if I could just end with a plea, um, if you are a professor or uh, in any way an insider to university administrator, please go to heterodoxacademy.org um, and join. It's free uh, and you'll find communities of support. We don't attack universities. We don't hate universities. We love them. So please join. Um, if you're a parent, if you have kids born after 1996, you have Gen Z kids, um, please go to letgrow.org. It's an organization I started with Lenore Skenazy um, to promote free-range uh, childhood. So this is the most important thing you can do for your kids' mental health. Um, uh, and if you run anything, if you run any kind of organization or company that is having these internal political conflicts and, and people getting constantly angry over a word here and there, um, please go to openmindplatform.org. Um, it's a program I started with Caroline Mel that teaches the basic skills of how do you how do you benefit from diversity, diversity of opinion? Um, how do you get smarter? How do you navigate complicated social spaces? How do you start a conversation? So, you know, times have been bad before in America and in the world. And in America, generally, uh, we rally. People are inventive. They find solutions. Um, and so we are seeing that now. We are seeing that. And so anyone listening, uh, be part of the solution. Uh, you don't have to be out there, you know, yelling and screaming, and, and you don't have to be out there writing essays and getting darts shot at you. Uh, but there's a lot you can do in your in your family, in your company, in your school, wherever you are. There's a lot you can do because most people are reasonable. Most Americans are reasonable, fairly moderate, center left, center right. Uh, you can even be far left and far right, and, and still be quite reasonable. 
Uh, most Americans are. We're all living in fear of the 10 or 15 percent uh, who are the extremists who use social media to destroy people. Well, John, thanks for that. I'll link to those organizations in the show notes. Thank you for, for bringing those up. And uh, thank you for talking with me and for everything you've done. You're really a tremendously important contributor here. My pleasure, Meg. And I, I look forward to I'm so excited that, that you're coming to the Heterodox Academy Conference in Denver, June 12th to 14th. Uh, I, I look forward to seeing you there. All right. Thanks and be well. That was my conversation with Jonathan Haidt. He is a social psychologist at New York University's Stern School of Business. His research examines the intuitive foundations of morality and how morality varies across cultural and political divisions. Haidt is the author of The Happiness Hypothesis and of the New York Times bestsellers, The Righteous Mind and The Coddling of the American Mind with Greg Lukianoff. He is also a co-founder of Heterodox Academy, a nonpartisan nonprofit that promotes open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement in institutions of higher learning. He is currently writing Life After Babel, Adapting to a World We Can No Longer Share. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. You can support the show at patreon.com slash theunspeakable. You get lots of perks there, but if Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount to the podcast by visiting the show's website at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking on the donate button. There is where you can also find links to the organizations John Haidt just mentioned in this interview, including information about the Heterodox Academy annual conference coming up in Denver in a few weeks. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.